Hello! Thank you for tuning in to the Saturday Night Supper Club podcast. This week we're hearing from Amy Martinez sharing a message titled Unfiltered. We live in a life where selfies and social media can make us look real, real good, even on our worst days. There's a filter for that. Just cover it up. Make it look great. But what if we take the lens off and replace it with just the goodness of God? What if we look at things like He sees them and we find a whole new perspective in our situations? Enjoy. tonight's message is called unfiltered. Um, We live in a world where selfies and social media often make us look like we are having a really, really good day, but really it's not such a good day. It's really a bad day. So um, I said in our uh, thing on the the advertisement, there's a filter for that. There's a filter for that um, to make us look really, really good on a really bad day. But what happens when we take that filter off and our lives become unfiltered? What happens when we take that social media mask off, we come home and we sit alone wondering, where is God in our situation? Well, it all depends on what lens you're looking through. Are we looking through our own lens or are we looking through the lens of God, through the goodness of God? So I looked up unfiltered. You're going to have to uh, just bear with me for a couple of definitions. I am a teacher at heart. I homeschooled Gabriel for four years, so (laughs) he can attest to that. Um, But unfiltered means not not having been toned down, censored, or edited. And I loved Random House's dictionary.com. They defined it with one hyphenated word, reality-based. Whoa, (laughs) I was like, that's a sucker punch to the jaw. Ouch, reality-based, unfiltered. Yes, our reality is often so much harder and less pretty than our last post or our last picture on social media. Our reality is what hits us smack dab in the face when we walk in the door and shut the door to the outside world. Um, Often, it's our reality that leads us to a place of discouragement. What does it mean to be discouraged? Webster's defines, one more definition, discouragement as being deprived of hope or deprived of courage, something that obstructs or hinders our hope or hinders our courage. And isn't that exactly what discouragement does? It hinders us, it makes us feel helpless and it makes us feel hopeless. And if discouragement obstructs us, fear paralyzes us often. Fear is often discouragement's best friend. It stands, they stand in front of our door of hope and they obstruct our view of God and they um, hinder us from moving on. We can easily get stuck in that place. We don't want to be stuck there. So last week, Brandon talked about running towards the roar. I'm looking out here, and a lot of you weren't here, but last week, Brandon talked about running towards the roar, tackling our battles of life by running towards them instead of away from them. He talked about how we are living stones in the hand of Christ, being hurled towards the battles that we face, and how we need Christ to be the source of our strength. And the hardest part is leaving the rest up to him. But he is trustworthy to fight for us. 
He is not against us. He is for us. And I love it when the Lord does this, when he ties together what's on the heart of his, um, of his, on his heart, and he shares that message with multiple people, and it's, he wants us to know what's on his heart. And it manifests itself in different personalities and different people say it different ways, but we hear his heart in different places. And he does that so that we know that it's him that's talking, not one of us. So I loved it last week. It was kind of funny for me to sit and listen to Brandon because I had already written <laughs> what I was going to talk about tonight. And it was fun to listen to him and see the ties and the, the people that were um, the same people that we were going to be talking about, some of the same verses and things like that. And I love it when the Lord does that because it makes us look real good like we planned it or something but we did not <laughs> um, all right so we're going to jump into tonight's into tonight's lesson and I'm going to talk to you about what happens when life happens when we become discouraged how do we find our hope again how do we move past our pain and regain our courage how in the world do we get God's perspective instead of our own how in the world do we find out what God is seeing instead of what we're seeing? Well, that's part of the problem. It's not of this world. It's not here. God has a kingdom perspective. He has a heavenly mindset that he wants us to be able to grab a hold of and to see through. God has only eyes for good. In order for us to see the good in our worst situations, we have to have faith to help us see things like he does. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the voice translation, which is one of my favorites, um, says, faith is the assurance of things you have hoped for, the absolute conviction that there are realities you've never seen. Faith begins as an unseen hope. Many doubt that it's even real. But because we know the work of the cross and we know what Christ did on the cross for us, faith is a very real reality for us. It's one that can be trusted. Revelation 12, 11, King James Version says, they won the victory over him, their enemy, because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And that is what I'm going to do tonight. We've all heard wonderful stories, and because we hear those good stories about the goodness of God, we can regain our own hope. Um, it's vital that we share our stories. It's one of the most important things that we can do as believers. Um, it encourages others to dream again. It encourages them to have hope again, and it encourages them to believe again. If we don't share our stories, the enemy gets a leg up in this world. So I would encourage you, share your story, and tonight I'm going to share a little bit of mine. <laughs> Psalm 27, 13 through 14 in the voice again says, I will move past my enemies with this one sure hope, that with my very own eyes I will see the goodness of the eternal in the land of the living, here, Please answer me. Don't give up. Wait for the eternal in expectation and be strong. Again, wait for the eternal. Often, to see the goodness of God, we have to wait. It's one of those unfun things that we get to do. Um, in my wait, I can say that if I had not seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, 
I would have remained discouraged and depressed and defeated and dead. Dead on the inside, that is. But learning to see my circumstances through the lens of God's goodness changed things for me. Like Brandon was talking about last week, we do have a real, real enemy that is often coming against us. But sometimes it's really not an enemy. It's just life. It's just life that happens. In our everyday life, life in general comes at us, and it feels like a battle. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. <laughs> Loss is hard. We live in a fallen world. And in this world, Jesus told us that we were not always going to have it easy, but he did tell us that there is hope. In John 16, 33, he said, In this world, you will have troubles, but take courage, take heart, for I have overcome this world. Amen. Thank goodness. The truth is that life happens, and the consequences of this life are sin and death and destruction and disappointment. In this life, we can become truly discouraged, especially when death comes at us and comes in and leaves us behind to face a world without someone that we love very much or something that we love very much. How do we rejoin the land of the living when something has died within us or death has come and taken someone close to, to us away? Maybe we've lost a dream, a marriage, our job, a friend, our health? How do we move on and trust God in times of great loss? How do we look at our life unfiltered by our emotions and our experiences? They taint the picture, don't they? We're human. We naturally will process things and filter things by what's happened to us and how we feel about it, what's going on in our own life. But there is a better way. We can step out in faith and learn how to endure our losses by looking at them through the raw, unfiltered goodness of God. Because for us, that is our reality. Although our vision has been skewed and our hearts may be broken, he's there in the midst of our pain. And he's good. He's good in everything, and he's good all the time. Paula's theme for the month is kind of based on the movie The Shack, and if you've seen it or you've read the book, you know that bad things happen to good people, that death comes when we least expect it, and when someone close to us dies, a part of us dies with them. We become discouraged, and we doubt the goodness of God. Easter is just a few weeks away, and we are smack dab in the middle of Lent. It's that time of year when we remember what Christ did on the cross and how much it cost the Father. And we get to celebrate the resulting gift of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that he left us with. God loved us so much that he made a way for us to be re reconciled to him, to receive forgiveness of our sins, and he knew that we would need a helper to help us when life happens. He knew that we would need a helper as we remain here in the land of the living. So in his infinite wisdom and his sweet, kind heart, he lovingly left us with the Holy Spirit living inside of us so that we could make it through when life happens. 
So we are going to turn to 1 Peter. We're going to get to the Bible. <laughs> were you waiting for that? <laughs> um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to talk about those living stones that Brandon talked about. Um, I am going to read verses 1 through 7 in the Passion Translation, and here we go. Especially now that you have had a taste of the goodness of Lord Jehovah and have experienced his kindness, especially since you have. So keep coming to him. Keep coming to him who is the living stone. Though he was rejected and discarded by men, but chosen by God and is priceless in God's sight, come to be his living stones who are continually being assembled into the sanctuary for God. For now you serve as holy priest, offering up spiritual sacrifices that he readily accepts through Jesus Christ. For it says in scripture, look, I lay a cornerstone in Zion, a chosen and priceless stone, and whoever believes in him will certainly not be disappointed or certainly won't be discouraged. As believers, you know his great worth. Indeed, his preciousness has been imparted to you with his Holy Spirit. So to sum that up, we are to be the living stones that God builds his kingdom upon so that others will know and see his goodness. Beth Moore says it in this way in her devotional book called Whispers of Hope. Wouldn't it be interesting if our lives became the living stones that expose the empty tomb, the proof that Jesus lives? We are stones rolled away, giving them a glance into the empty tomb, a lingering living proof of the resurrection. So if we are to be those living stones called to show and be the evidence of the empty tomb and bring God glory and to make him famous, how do we do this in our everyday lives, especially if we're discouraged <laughs> and feeling helpless? We must regain our hope and walk even if we are brokenhearted and feeling discouraged. We have to show others that hope so that they can see it and be drawn to it. His hope, whether we feel it or not, resides on the inside of us. And that's the only way that other people are going to know that the Holy Spirit is our comforter and they're going to know about that empty tomb, about the hope that we have in Christ. So this Tonight, I'm going to take us back to the very first Easter, before Easter was Easter. Uh, back to, we're going to walk through the time uh, that we now call Good Friday and make our way to the Resurrection Sunday. Today, we know what happened, but back then they didn't. They had no idea about the good news of Sunday morning. They had no idea that Sunday was coming. They had to watch Jesus be, die, be died, be crucified, and they had to live through Saturday before they would know the joy that came on Sunday morning. So what about Saturday? Saturday for me represents that long, dark night of the soul where the world grieved the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to talk to you about my long, dark Saturday night of the soul. A time of great loss, a time of death, a time of many deaths, actually. It was a time of mourning and a time of sadness. But mostly, I want to tell you how I was brought back to life 
through the resurrection power and the hope that it provides us about the assurance that Sunday is coming. Sunday's on the way. We're going to pick back up in 1 Peter 3.15. But give reverent honor in your hearts to the anointed one and treat him as the holy master of your lives. And if anyone asks and hope, uh, if anyone asks about the hope living within you, always be ready to explain your faith with gentleness and respect. This scripture says that our lives should be like those living stones pointing to the tomb and telling others about that living hope. But we always have to be ready to tell why and how in the world we are making it through. Easter provides us with a great example to share with people. It's all about the resurrection. It's all about the cross. It's, about, it's a time when God reminds us that he is not only able but willing to resurrect those dead things within us. It reminds us that we have the resurrection power at our disposal. It lives on the inside of us, and we can bring those dead things back to life. In the resurrection, death is conquered, chains are broken, darkness is defeated, and freedom is found. He is risen from the dead, and because he lives, we can live out our own lives in that same power. Others will be able to know and see the hope that we have, but sometimes life happens and we lose our hope. How do we point others to Christ when our hope dies and when we experience the death of a dream or a marriage, a loved one, or we just simply feel dead inside? then we can't be those living stones. We're now going to go to Luke 23, 44 through 54. The death of the Savior. It was now only midday, yet the whole world became dark for three hours as the light of the sun faded away. And suddenly in the temple, the thick veil hanging in the holy place, was ripped in two. Then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, I surrender my spirit into your hands. And then he took his last breath and died. When the Roman capt captain overseeing the crucifixion witnessed all that took place, he was awestruck and glorified God. Acknowledging what they had done, he said, I have no doubt we just killed the righteous one. The crowds that had gathered to observe this spectacle went back to their homes, overcome with deep sorrow. They were devastated by what they had witnessed. But standing off to the distance were some of those who truly knew Jesus. And the women who had been following him all the way from Galilee were keeping vigil. There was also a member of the Jewish council named Joseph from the village of Ramah a good-hearted, honorable man who was eager for the appearing of the kingdom realm of God. He came before Pilate and asked permission to take the body of Jesus and give him a proper burial, and Pilate granted him permission. So he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a winding sheet of linen and placed it in a new, unused tomb chiseled out of solid rock. It was Friday. Jesus had died, 
He'd been crucified. Death had come. And for his disciples and those women, there was sudden darkness. The earth quaked. The veil was torn. They were scared. They felt completely abandoned. Things had not gone like they had expected. They were grieving, and they didn't even have time to properly bury their friend. Verse 54, it was preparation day, and the Sabbath was fast approaching. The women who had been companions of Jesus from the beginning saw all this take place and watched as the body was laid in the tomb. Afterward, they returned home to prepare the fragrant spices and ointments and were, that they were planning to anoint his body with after the Sabbath was completed, according to the commandments of the law. It was preparation day. These women did what they could. They prepared the spices. They got everything ready, but yet they couldn't even go to the tomb. All they could do was wait. Tradition and custom, by, because of tradition and custom, these women could not do any work on Sunday. It was the Sabbath. All they could do was sit and wait and feel hopeless and useless. They couldn't do anything. They had no hope. They didn't know that Resurrection Sunday was on the way. They had to mourn and grieve and face the unknown. Does that sound familiar? Haven't we all had situations where we don't know what's going to happen and there's nothing that we can do but wait? Doubt set in and the questions started to come. This was surely the darkest night the world had ever known, the night before the resurrection, the night there was no hope. Have you ever been hopeless? Is there a situation right now that you feel all hope is gone? Maybe you're wondering how in the world you got to this place in your life, and you're asking some of those same questions that those ladies were that day. Why did this happen? How does this work into your plan? I can't see how anything good could come from this. How long will this pain last? How could you, God, let this happen to me? One of the women at the tomb that day was Mary Magdalene. And commentaries differ on their opinion of whether or not she's the same Mary in this following story, but there are many Marys <laughs> in the Bible, and there's many similarities, so it is possible. We're going to skip over to John 11, and I'm going to be reading out of the NASB. And I'm going to read just short parts of this um, chapter. Now, there was a certain man named Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. So when Jesus came... I'm down in 17 now. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, ran out to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said, Come, Lord, come with us and see. And Jesus wept. In verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. And I found this verse, Psalm 116.15, that says, The Lord cares deeply when one of his loved ones dies. This verse would come to mean a whole bunch to me. Psalm 116.15, The Lord cares deeply when one of his loved ones dies. He cares, and he sees, and he always has a plan for our good that will ultimately bring him glory. Like Mary and Martha on June 14, 2007, I found myself in a place where there was no hope. I was asking the same questions and more when I received a phone call that forever changed my life. That was a Thursday morning, and I had left to go um, to some jewelry party or something that one of my friends was having, but I had forgotten my wallet, and I needed my wallet because I might buy something. And so I headed back to the house to pick that up, and I ran inside. I think I even left my car running. I ran to the bathroom, grabbed my wallet, and the phone rang, and it was my mom. And my mom called, and I was ready to tell her, Mom, I gotta go. I'll call you back in the car, or whatever. But I didn't. I answered the phone, and I'm like, hi, Mom. And she said, Amy, I need to tell you that your brother passed away this morning. He was in an accident. He was 45 years old. He never got to be as old as I am today, because I'm older than that. Um, And he left two children, and it was completely unexpected. He had moved to California just uh, maybe a year before, and my sister and I both had said, actually, he's never coming back to Oklahoma if he goes to California. If he comes back, it'll be in a box. And we were just kidding. We just knew he wouldn't come home to Oklahoma from California. He loved it there. Yet he did. He um, never came home, and he fell off of a 10-story building to his death, and we will never know what really happened that night. There are questions that will always be in the back of our minds, but on this side of heaven, we won't know. After my brother's death, I spun into the depths of doubts and depression. I was hopeless. This was not just a time of loss for a physical person in my life, but it was a loss in every single area of my life. Um, The loss of dreams, a physical loss of our dream home at that time, the loss of a dear friendship, the loss of my health. I was sick with no diagnosis, no explanation. There was a loss of security, a loss of our finances. Even my husband's business partnership split up at this time. It was an overall season of loss in every area of my life. And all of this, culminating with my brother's death, led me to a year-long wrestling match with the Lord, a very long Saturday night of the soul. Like those 
that were closest to Jesus must have endured that night. If death and loss represent Friday of Easter, what does Saturday represent? The loss of hope, the unknown, waiting, a place that we know will never be the same again, a place where there's no joy and only mourning. It's characterized by loss and trauma, the unknown, where we're filled with doubt, often fear and mourning. It's where we lose our courage and become discouraged. It's like a long, dark night of the soul. It's the place that I began to question God about everything I thought I knew about him. That's what the sudden loss of a loved one does. It brings more questions than we could ever get answered. In my year-long wrestling match with the Lord, I doubted everything I'd ever been taught. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Oklahoma. I had been to church my entire life, and I questioned everything that I'd ever been taught, everything that I thought I knew. These were things that I couldn't even say out loud. They were so personal and so holy and so unholy that I dared not say them in an audible voice. But I did because I had to know. I needed to know the answers. And often when they would come, I would argue (laughs) and we would wrestle. But I would ask the same questions those ladies were asking, the women that followed Jesus. I asked, how could you let this happen? How does this work into your plan? I cannot see any goodness. How long will this pain last? And at one point, I even asked, will there ever be joy again? He saw me through it all. He loved me through it all. He loved me through the darkest hours. And in the end, I knew him better. And I knew myself better too. And it was worth it. I have a sweet friend who often reminds me, it's going to be worth it all. She says, Amy, it's going to be worth it all. I promise. Girl, he doesn't waste a thing, and he doesn't. Often during these times, he takes us to a place that's further than we've ever been with him before. Beth Moore calls this the place of further still. These are the times in our lives where no one else can go with us. We have to go alone. We can't take our best friends with us. We can't take our spouse or our significant other. We have to go alone because it's got to be just you and just God. We find this place in the book of Matthew. Jesus went there, and he is our example of how to endure our loss in light of the goodness of God. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He sees from a kingdom perspective, and we can learn to do that as well. We find this place in Matthew 26, 39, says, he walked a little further and finally fell prostrate and prayed. Father, this is the last thing I want. If there is any way, release this bitter cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. That is a rough prayer. (laughs) Further still is that place where we hash it out with God, where we wrestle with him, and he heals our deepest hurts and our deepest wounds. 
when we emerge from this place, we are never, ever the same. We can't be because we've been in the presence of God. You cannot leave his presence without in some way being transformed. It's what he does. Thankfully, I found out that it is totally okay to ask questions, to ask the tough questions of God. He invites us to do so. He knows that through our doubt and questioning that he will prove to be the answer. He reveals himself in such a way that the answers that he brings are in his character of who he is, and he meets us right where we're at and answers us with who he is. It's what Margaret Feinberg calls the holy who of God. As we go through times of loss and become discouraged, if we will just press into the Lord and ask those tough questions, he will answer with who he is in our time of need. He tells us to be brave and come right before the throne with our questions because the king awaits us there. In Hebrews 4.16, 4, 16, he says, So let us then come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So just who is he in our time of need? He says to us in, our, in this love letter that he wrote to us, he says, I am. I am faithful, true, loving, full of compassion, trustworthy. I'm the miracle maker, the wonder worker, and the way maker. I'm your refuge, your strength, the light of the world, a mighty warrior, the Prince of Peace, the Lord your Savior, your ever-present help in time of need. And I will never leave you or forsake you. God hears our cries, and he allows us to ask those tough questions, and he answers with the comfort of who he is. He gives us hope, and in fact, this hope is found in the very most important I am statement in the Bible. Jesus said to Mary before he raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. He says, there is hope. Finally, it's Sunday. Luke 24, 1 through 6. In the Passion Translation, the resurrection of Jesus. Very early that Sunday morning, the women made their way to the tomb, carrying the spices that they had prepared. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, Jesus' mother. Arriving at the tomb, they discovered that the huge stone covering the entrance had been rolled away. So they went in to take a look, but the tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was gone. They stood there, stunned and perplexed. Suddenly, two men in dazzling white robes, like lightning, appeared above them. Terrified, the women fell to the ground on their faces. The men in white said to them, Why would you be looking for the living one in a tomb? 
He's not here. He is risen. It's Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, finally. There's an empty tomb. There is hope. Jesus lives. Hope lives. All because of the cross and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can say with the psalmist, I would have lost heart. I would have lost hope. I would have been discouraged. Unless I had believed, I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That land of living stones that we've been talking about. We are called to be the living proof, the hope that others see. We are called to show others the goodness of God, who has called us out of the darkness and out of our discouragement into his marvelous light. Tonight I've offered a message of hope. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. He is risen. Through Jesus, God wants to bring hope into your situation and into your circumstance. He wants to resurrect dead things within you and bring you back to life. My prayer is that this year, Easter would be a little different for you. I pray it's unfiltered. I pray that you'll see it through the lens of the goodness of God, that it will be life-giving and hope-giving, and that you will experience a fresh and anew the resurrection power of Jesus, and let him do a new thing in you. Where you've been hopeless, I pray a new measure of hope would be poured out upon you, and renew your passion to be a living stone, to build his kingdom upon. I pray that you would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Because he lives, we can face the future, and the future looks mighty good when you look at it through the lens of the goodness of God. We read this scripture at my brother's funeral. My mom picked it out. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And I'm going to read it in the message because I like it. What a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life. And we have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And that future starts right now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and life whole. I have one more thing that I want to share with you, and I hope that it will bring you courage and give you hope for whatever th life throws at you next. Remember this when you're running towards your battle next time. Sunday is coming, and with it, new life. One of the things that I discovered while I was preparing to write a um, devotional recently was that in every single battle that we face, there is bounty to be gathered at the end. What I mean is that we, we, have, to, we have to go out and face our battles. We have to go through them to get to the other side. But on this other side, there's something more than just a victory to be had. It might be that you have the courage to step out and do some of the new things he's called you to do. It might be that once your fear paralyzed you, that you now are ready to step out and do what he's called you to do. Or maybe you'll find that in forgiveness, there's actually freedom instead of the chains of bitterness that once bound you. 
But whatever your battle is, I promise you that when you look back, you will find some bounty. You will see the goodness of God in your deepest wounds and your fiercest battles. God never wastes a thing. He uses every weapon that's been used against us to build strength, stamina, and confidence deep within our souls. And in the process, he ignites within us a passion for more of him. We can begin to see our battles as worthy of the bounty carried off the battlefield. And the best part is found in Psalm 76, 1 through 3 in the Passion Translation. God is well known in the land. He is famous, making his home, living here on Mount Zion. That's where he smashes every weapon of war that has come against him. That's where he uses the broken arrows that have come at us as kindling for his mighty bonfire. Don't you love that? You see, the weapons that once wounded become the kindling that sets our heart ablaze. If you can imagine all that weaponry all over the battlefield scattered about, and you look out and you see all the things that have been used against you, he comes and he gathers them all. And he uses every one of them. He builds a bonfire, strikes the match, and boom, up in smoke. They're gone. He uses them all to nurture us and to keep us warm. To uh, You can think of it as a bonfire. You cook over a bonfire. Um, he, it's a nurturing thing that he does. He uses, he, <laughs> he, that's what he does. Our wounds and our discouragement are healed through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in a passionate love and devotion for our Lord Jesus Christ. For every hurt, every scar, every battle wound, every loss, he uses the purifying power of the Holy Spirit's fire to set a bonfire in our heart. He burns up what's not of him, and he ignites a flame that all can see. He's so good. He takes everything that was used to harm us, and he works it out to demonstrate his glory within us, to make us those living stones that point to the empty tomb. What seems overwhelming and what causes you to lose your hope will one day be forgotten. What we once thought was dead within us can live again. God's in the business of bringing dead things back to life. And if in the midst of our loss, we can look unfiltered through the lens of God's goodness, through the lens of a loving God who is good and wants good things for us, we will begin to see with eyes of hope. I have one more scripture to read over you before we pray, Psalm 34, 1 through 4 in the Passion Translation says, Lord, I am bursting with joy over what you've done for me. My lips are full of perpetual praise. I am boasting of you and all your works. So let all who are discouraged take heart. Join me, everyone. Let's praise the Lord together. Let's make him famous. Let's make his name glorious to all. So listen to my testimony. 
I cried out to God in my distress, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Tonight, if you feel discouraged or you feel dead somewhere inside, we would love to pray for you. And if you don't know that living hope of Jesus, we want to pray that for you too. As always, thanks for listening to the SNSC podcast. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, make sure that you subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud and in iTunes or on our website at SaturdayNightSupperClub.org. We're so excited to hear from Amy. She is our new women's director for Saturday Night Supper Club. She has tons of fun events planned. Her heart is so for women and their identity and their healing and their wholeness. We have an event coming up this August. It is a women's retreat, August 18th through 20th. You can also find information on that at SaturdayNightSupperClub.org. Have a great week.